Welcome to Black Sheep by BBH. I'm your host, writer and performer, Daniela Isaacs. This podcast celebrates those that don't follow the flock. Across the series, I'll be having conversations with some of the world's most notorious black sheep. We'll hear their stories told through the rules they've broken. Black Sheep is a podcast about rules and how to break them. Our Black Sheep this week is serial entrepreneur Dan Murray-Serta. When I was researching Dan, these credentials popped up. Co-founder at Grabble and Mobula, an angel investor the UK Young Entrepreneur of the Year 2015, founder of an international community of entrepreneurs called Founders, comprising of 350 founders between London, LA and San Francisco, creator of Fun Conference, a 65-person weekend away for founders and CEOs where all content is curated and attended by fellow participants, producer and host of the top business podcast called Secret Leaders, in which he interviews key people in the UK entrepreneurship sector, featuring founders of huge organisations, including the producers of this podcast, BBH. He writes a startup blog, he writes for Forbes, he writes for the Huffington Post, and now he is the CEO and founder of Heights, a supplement targeted for brain health, which has been backed by philosopher, I never know how to say his name, so will you say it for me? Alain de Botton. Yeah, because I always want to do it with an accent. <laughs> um, the renowned Dr. Chatterjee. Yep. Thanks, thanks for that. And our previous guest, a name I know well, neuroscientist Dr. Tara Swart. He's even got the praise of Sir Stephen Fry, who's now a very happy consumer. Um, Dan, you know the name of our podcast, Black Sheep. So I guess straight away I want to ask you, do you think of yourself as a black sheep? Um, I do in quite a lot of senses. Um, But it's interesting because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, um, you, you sort of start off feeling like you're a black sheep on the basis of a lot of your friends are doing the things, you know, you went to university and everyone went and pitched you that you're meant to do with your life. Mm. Um, And when you just keep trying to find new things, because you feel relentlessly creative, and that just happens to be how you've applied it. um, It's quite easy to feel like very unusual. Yeah. Uh, But but the difference is, I think that you probably felt more like a black sheep as an entrepreneur 30 years ago, pre-internet. Yeah. The internet's just made an amazing opportunity for people to do their own thing. And anyone doing their own thing, like the technical definition of an entrepreneur is someone who creates a business, basically. It's not very exciting. <laughs> um, so, you know, if in, in that basis, you know, there's it's interesting. It's 8% of all jobs in the world are entrepreneurship. Wow. So this is crazy. Hundreds of millions. Millions of people have that job. So it's harder and harder to feel special, but I try. Dan, I want to know how you um, have become a black sheep in the startup world. So let's go straight into your three broken rules. Will you kick us off, please, by telling me the first rule that you have broken? What I've found in my experience as an entrepreneur is the less you know about the industry you're going into, the more open it is to be broken, really, and to be innovated in. And if you look at the people in um, throughout time, in most of the major businesses, the guys that actually uh, you know disrupted the industries and made them like uh, the biggest companies in the world, essentially, they were not experts in their field so you know with the exception of someone like you know bill gates who to be fair was a computer nerd and made Mm -hmm. microsoft you know steve jobs like he studied calligraphy at university right he was not a computer guy whatsoever i mean that was steve wozniak he can't do it without it but you know he was ultimately just an amazing design led person and he made apple if you look at um, Jeff Bezos, I mean, he was basically a financial trader and made the biggest book-selling company in the world compared to Borders and everyone else at the time. You'd think that a publisher would go and make Amazon, but if a publisher made Amazon, Amazon would never be anything more than another bookstore. It's very, very common that the people who um, you know, uh, make a real dent are the ones who um, weren't experts in their field. So I think it's really interesting because that's, you know, to use Hegarty language here, there's everyone zigging on the concept that you should be an expert and the ones that seem to do this relatively well zag. So from my point of view, 
Um, I created an app called Grabble with my best friend Joel. The, the first properly, uh, you know, scalable entrepreneurial idea I had. So by this point, I was actually on to business number three. But um, the previous two, I'd never had any employees for. So, you know, they were sort of the classic example of, um, you know, starting up something, giving it a go and, and, and scaling it with, with my friend Joel. By the time we got into Grabble, we had some confidence by that point that we sort of knew the fundamental basics and we felt like we wanted to go for it. So the idea behind Grabble was uh, to be very lazy with everyone else's description because I no longer get defensive about this. But as the Daily Mail said, <laughs> is this the Tinder for fashion? Um, wow. Yeah. So, what a byline. Uh, so it was an awesome way to start the year. Yeah. And um, anyway, so the, the user experience is kind of implicit in that, right? So... Uh, Common logic at the time, a lot of a lot of retailers were building mobile apps, and what they were trying to do was build their website into a mobile app experience, which, as you imagine, is extremely hard. You've always built something for uh, a desktop experience, and now it's vertical. So how on earth do you do that? So they all ended up looking exactly the same. And our rule breaking actually on that was this makes no sense. As in, why would we try and make a fashion app that? try to fit in all these features and everything else in mobile, what makes way more sense is looking at what people already find really popular on mobile and try and fit a fashion experience around that. And so Tinder seemed like the really obvious one. So we literally <laughs> basically created our own catalogue of products and put them into a swiping format and it went completely viral. So so not being an expert in fashion, yes. what led you to come up with the idea for Grabble? Social fashion was basically going, you know, it was growing extremely quickly and no one seemed to have cracked mobile. That in itself is exactly the reason why we've got as good a chance as anyone because we're not being held up from a pre-existing experience of having a giant catalogue, all this like weight of like all the data and everything under, you know, just like we'll forget all of it. And because we were able to say to someone, it's really hard to... Um, look someone in the eyes and make a point. Can you name me one company in the whole world that you would say has nailed this? Mm. And when they can't say, why do you think that is? They usually give you a list of answers. You're like, so why can't we? Right. And it's like a really compelling thing because you're just planting the seed of an idea in someone that you're hoping to work with. And then suddenly they're like, that's a really huge, awesome idea. Like no one's done it yet. So why can't we? And the thing is like the user experience was an absolute winner. Like it, it, it went completely viral. Like I say, we got the homepage of the Daily Mail or Mail Online. Um, we won loads of awards. We yeah, became like top fifty in Drapers. Were you in that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, we became the number one shopping app in the UK. So, and actually, for seven weeks, because it was unsustainable, but in Europe which is super cool. But Zalando are monsters, so yeah. it's like really hard to compete with them. Like you ever thought that ASOS were big? Zalando were crazy. Um, so we had this, and, and, and everything came down to the simple user experience. So again, like Black Sheep rule breaking, and this was actually like our best insight and why we, why we were winning for so long. Everyone in fashion and everyone in shopping has this rule. And the rule is um, you get a customer to your site or to your product and then your job is to obviously increase the basket size as much as humanly possible and keep them on your website for as long as possible and so we did this like initial market research but also like the same thing with tinder right just looking around we we're like that doesn't actually make sense it doesn't seem to be how people are using their mobile phones so if you think about how much time you spend on your mobile phone even today the answer is yeah obviously you're rolling your eyes mm. the answer is too much too much time but but you're not on one product for too much time. You're in, out, in, out. And the reason is because, and come on to the brain stuff later, but like the dopamine spikes, the way it all works now is basically designed to gamify your, your attention. And um, your attention is being spiked all the time. But interestingly, they are designed to, the good ones are designed to let you go and come back. That's the whole point of having an app. An app is like your window to the world where you can come back on every time you want. Mm -hmm. Your job is to try and figure out how to make that experience so delightful they want to come back without a nudge. Yeah, interesting. So our rule-breaking thing there was literally everyone's trying to keep consumers on their products, apps, whatever, for as long as possible. Let's do the opposite. So we had this product philosophy called busy or bored, and we decided that all of our customers were always in one state of mind mm -hmm. or the other. They were either busy or bored. So we would always have all of our product experiences would be geared towards... If you're busy, you can come in and you can see the products that you've already swiped 
we haven't tried to make you buy them, but you've already swiped them, you've already liked them. They go straight into like a save basket. It makes super easy for you. If you want to buy them all in one click, you can. We concierged everything for you. So we would go and do all of the all the purchasing and everything for you and they'd all turn up and we'd sort out your returns and everything so it was a really slick concierge service and if you're bored you can literally just go on the uh, on the app and just swipe away and we won't try and make you buy you'll just have a pleasant experience you'll be inspired it's just content streams and that's it mm -hmm. so literally because we didn't try and keep people on our product they kept coming back and we were doing tens of millions of swipes every single day from our customers who were basically obsessed with the experience of being a sort of allowed to browse guilt-free like we never tried to drive them back and because of that the and there was always new content coming in they just enjoyed it so that was um a, a surprising winning philosophy that for a long time worked until we went broke. <laughs> and just tell me how you went broke. So um, basically all of this is a really lovely idea. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the reality is it's very expensive, unsurprisingly, to concierge everything for customers. So actually, we had factored in all of the different bits and pieces. So marketing costs, engagement costs, etc., etc. What we had not figured out at all or even considered, which I now so much wiser, niche knowledge, but how many different uh, logistics partners there are and how many right. people claim, I'm not sure it's true, but how many people claim they don't get their packages. Now, once that happens and you've got millions of customers, you, wow. you quickly go broke. Uh -huh. So what we should have done in retrospect was at about 100,000 customers. We should have totally taken stock of how difficult this was because you could already see it happening. So an unusual amount of people basically losing their packages. You're suddenly backtracking. When you're over a million customers and these are tens of thousands of people every month claiming they haven't got anything, you're on the hook for all of it. Just to give you an idea on numbers, we were growing at 30,000 new users every single week. The company was only around for three and a half years. And in that time, we overtook ASOS, Netaporte, Zalando to go to number one in the app store. And, you know, if you really think about the speed at which, you know, as a as a really first time proper founder, like understanding how to do these things, I was having to hire five new people a week, like so many customers, so many interviews, so much customer insight, so much growth. And the revenue is growing super fast as well. So top line numbers, you think you're doing really well. You're doing a few million pound every single month coming in on sales, loads of customer delight, people tweeting about you everywhere, you're winning awards, all just like one giant blur. And then this thing, you like, you know that you should sort it out, but it doesn't ever feel like that day you're going to. And then basically, you know, this all literally happened at exactly the same time as Brexit. So right. the, the problem that we actually had was less so that we couldn't, we, it completely imploded. And actually more so that funding dried up immediately. In a boom market, you can raise money um, to solve these things because you have all the numbers and the only thing you don't have is the cash to solve it, which is the Amazon story. It's loads of these guys, right? However, when people feel like funding is going to dry up and not so much, when you explain that you've got a bad margin and these huge problems, people are like, that's a big risk. I don't want to invest. And that's basically what happened to us. So there's some market timing in there. Um, but you know, the thrill of the ride. And actually, like, if we were experts in fashion, like, we would have spent so long on style consulting and, you know, sourcing, like, the right supply, you know, the right designers for the platform and all this stuff. And because we weren't, we were like, no one cares. We're just going to make an algorithm and that's going to figure out basically what people like and then people will decide themselves by swiping. You wouldn't, you know, just don't come at it from a fashion point of view. So you ticked off fashion. Yes. What other industries, before mm. we get to heights, mm. what other industries did you kind of tick off in your 20s? Okay. Um, so, uh, well, I did do something with um, the group buying space. So, you know, like Groupon. Yeah. Uh, so pre-Grabble, uh, which was... You know, actually not very rule-breaking. The only rule-breaking thing I can say I did there, which I love and I'm very proud of, uh, that grew, that went viral very quickly as well. Uh, far quicker than Grabble. So, like, that went viral instantly, basically. It went viral. We did a deal um, on our launch that was a free £5 takeaway um, for anyone that signed up from Hungry House. And we got paid £1.50 every time someone... Hungry House is a, is back in the day, isn't it? Back in the day. <laughs> and we got paid a pound fifty every single time someone redeemed it. And it went viral on, like, you know, Martin Lewis and Hot Deals UK. So... 
you know, we were like cash rich super fast. There was two of us. It was day one. We did like 100,000 of these in like a day. Wow. We like, oh, my God. We are literally going to be millionaires. This is unbelievable. OK, so that's group deals. Tick. S- yeah. Spoiler alert. Didn't work. <laughs> Fashion Tick created an app called Popcorn. Right. Um, so Popcorn um, was uh, basically a, a movies app. So it was an app to watch. I Basically, we ripped off our user experience from Gravel. We built an app over a weekend. And it's very, very cool, actually, because it went completely viral again. So we got to a million downloads with no social media. So there isn't even a Twitter account for Popcorn. Um, but what it did do was it got featured by Apple everywhere all the time so we basically got to a million downloads on popcorn um so that's like movies and trailers that's all it was and so we like literally plugged into a free database of trailers made a, a crude algorithm that said something like top 10 times uh like ac- enter actress name mm-hmm. right so you know just to give you like an idea so the reason i'm saying that one is specifically is because my funnest fact about popcorn one is that it was the number one app in Sweden. And, yeah. and then the other one was um, it was so popular in Saudi Arabia. And the most popular collection of movies um, was Emma Watson films. Really? Which is mind-blowingly rule-breaking for Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Right? As in, she's literally the most famous feminist out there. And there you go. How Saudi funny. Arabia. Yeah. Maybe so, they're all massive Harry Potter fans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, popcorn. Yeah, so that's so cinema. That's film cin- cinema and movies. Yeah, that's my passion area for sure. Okay, massive failure, software business. Right. So really thought, and that was called Mobula. Um, and I really thought that was going to be a good idea because we built all this technology, right, with with apps and mobile, et cetera, et cetera. So this is everyone, when you do B2C, so a consumer business, everyone in there tells you, if you guys did B2C well, just you wait till you do B2B. It's so easy. Mm. And you're like, great. My ego loves hearing that. My God, I was useless at it. And we all were. Um, so we tried to create a technology platform essentially for retail, um, building uh, mobile apps, a little bit like Shopify. So, you know, the, the idea is mobile apps cost a fortune to make well. And our whole thing was we're going to charge like nothing. Right. Um, but give you like customizable control. So the vision was very big. We totally underfunded it is actually the truth of what happened. But from a really fundamental um, like key part, um, that was by far the time where the rule is the rule. Yeah. All right. Uh, become an expert in your field. Like I am no, the, the business model is SaaS, so software as a service. I am not an expert in it. Neither is my business partner. And it showed. <laughs> so you checked out. Yeah. So that rule doesn't always work. I mean, this is the one that broke me because I just like, there was no, there was no love, like no love in it. Yeah. You know, it's really, really, really hard, like big technological work and working with a ton of developers, which by that point, you know, I become very familiar with. But not you're just useless. So right. yeah, I think fair to accept defeat in in some things. Yeah. Okay. So tech ticked off, mm. and then obviously, and we'll get to this in your next rule. But uh, what would you say is brain brain health? Brain health. Brain health is yes. the next one. So if we look at all of these, yes, you're you're not an expert in any of them. When you go to an investor to seek funding, mm. surely one of the first questions they ask you is, "What is your knowledge in this field?" Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and I literally get defensive and go, what's yours, mate? <laughs> um, no, I don't. Uh, so, you know, it's a really, really good question. And the truth is to go to an investor with a product or an idea or whatever, you need a unique insight. Um, you need this secret that no one else has uncovered yet. And then you need a really clear plan about why and how you're going to approach it differently to other people. Um, what you think your, um, your, your key way of winning is. Now, to be honest, like in speaking in the BBH world as well, when the answer to those questions is brand, you are fucked. But... In this case, that is literally like the key part of it, and the reason. Sorry, in which case, or well, in, all in of the case? Cases. No, in the case of heights, right? Um, so Just my new business, supplement. yeah. So in the case of that, the pitch really is um, all about brand and 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 why that is unique and why you have unique opportunities to do something in that space. And um, actually, like I really strongly feel like feel this: the because we're not experts is why we'll win actually plays really well into this specific pitch and this specific audience. And it comes from personal experience. The definition of science is answering a question. 
And I actually think that the the job of an entrepreneur is is the exact opposite, which is like to constantly be asking questions. Mm. So I I'm no scientist, like for sure. Like you know, I'm I I'm I'm far too creative to be a scientist and like the process of getting to the truth I find, you know, arduous and boring. I'd rather create new and that's very entrepreneurial. So the truth of the matter is, can I go to investors and can I go to people and promise them that I don't know the answer? And the, I don't actually believe that many people know the answer. But what I will do is ask the right questions. And by asking the right questions, I will go on a path of discovery to getting closer to the answer. So to be honest with you, it's, it's genuinely it's the opposite of arrogance. It's, it's um, admitting ignorance and admitting that you have no better idea. And if and I use this statement often. If if I was sitting here telling you that what I've built or what I or the idea I have is right, you should be terrified. You should be terrified and you should not invest in someone that tells you that because, you know, how does that signal someone who's keen to learn? How does that signal someone who's like passionate and hungry always to ask more questions, more questions? If, using him again, if Jeff Bezos was the type of person who was basically happy to answer a question, then he would have literally made a competitor to Borders and Waterstones, etc. because he answered the question of how you sell books online. But he's not the type, right? He's constantly curious. So once you've done books, you're interested in pets, and then you're interested in CDs and then DVDs. And Perhaps actually this is the perfect point to get onto the yes. second rule that you have broken. So Dan, will you tell me what that is, please? Yes. So the common common logic is that you don't focus on your failures um, and you don't focus on failure in general. And, you know, it, it all sounds to this point like I don't, but actually so far I've collected many failures. And I guess from my point of view, the ability to actually accept failure and accept that things haven't worked and accept why. And like I said to you earlier, there's different things. There's different ways of being a failure. Failure is all about um, framing as well. So there's financial failure. But there's also um, failure to achieve any kind of happiness or fulfillment from what you're doing. And like I said, I've shut down businesses for both reasons. Uh, you know, I find the concept of failure in our society is so linked to finance um, I don't actually see that as much of a failure as um, creating your own glass cage. And that is exactly what I had done with a software business, which as an entrepreneur, the greatest gift you have is that you get to go out into the world and choose what you want to do. And, you know, you could say that about really most creative endeavors, but there is a moment where suddenly you can turn around and realize that, a bunch of people have sort of nudged you to this reality and to doing something that's not making you happy. And suddenly your world is like completely different to how you ever imagined your life would be. And that's really what happened with Mobula. What drew you to it then? Um, necessity. So again, coming back to financial failure or not, the story with Grabble is we never ran out of money. Um, we never actually failed in any traditional term. We had money left over because we weren't able to make it work. But instead of actually failing and actually going through the financial ruin, we're like, we've got money left over. We should absolutely see what we can make of this. And the logical thing seemed to be a software platform because we had so much inbound interest. We had money left over from the software platform. And by that point, none of it had worked, but we hadn't spent all of the money. We'd actually promised what we would do with the money with Mobula, um, building the software platform. And because we weren't technologists and we didn't know what on earth we were doing, we'd completely missed the mark. Right. And so we were the best part of a year away from realizing it, except spending a lot of money. And so the reality of that was, um, you know, framing failure. See people who are miserable at what we're doing. We could carry on like everyone else would, uh, and just spend this money like the good boys that we have been told to be by our investors to get to this end product, to get to revenue, to build, you know, value for our investors. But 
it's going to take about a year from this point. We've already spent a lot of money. It feels really irresponsible and we feel totally incompetent. So in every kind of psychological way, we feel like we failed. The problem literally with fundraising and entrepreneurship is, again, unless you've run out of money, no one accepts that you failed. This is literally only one definition of failure in business. We would like to reframe the conversation about what failure is and stick and a you, stick a mirror up. And did you say this to your investors? I don't think I was quite so eloquent. <laughs> uh, this has taken some reflection. The reality is we gave them options, which were you should replace us and then spend the money and we'll just bugger off and do our own thing. Or we can give the money back because that's the other option, right? It's other people's investment money and this is the money left in the bank so we can give it back. Um, they actually turned around to us and said, we'd actually rather you did option three, which is go away for three months and come up with a completely new idea, and but it has to be, be it has to be consumer, <laughs> and we're like yeah, there's no worries about us doing the same thing again. Don't worry, um, and they're like, look, if you come back in three months and we don't like the idea or what you've suggested you're going to do, uh, then then we'll take one of the other options. But it makes sense, like wow. don't don't spend any money, but go away and create for three months. How incredibly supportive. Very. So, I don't Very. know anything about investors really yeah. from a business point of it's, view. It's rare. So my assumption is going to those investors who you clearly hold so high mm. um, and saying to them, I can't do this anymore. And it's not even financially, it's just psychologically. That must have been really hard. Yeah, it's it, it's also most importantly, it's unbelievably embarrassing. And then to take you through an even more horrific mental health um, fact, going to your team. Because don't forget, when you're an entrepreneur, you are building a family. And this is like the psychological problem. Like people always tell you um, there's an analogy in sports, which is you're not, you're building a team, not a family. Be careful not to build a family. And the reason is because you can't fire your sister. Yeah. But when you're building a team, you know, and this is why like the best sports coaches always have the psychological framework of, of distance between the two, uh, because you've, you've always got to tweak and optimize. And technically so does a business owner. But the problem is like the, the difference and reality of those two things. It's impossible to not feel like a family. You've all grown something together. You're doing something together. You're hanging out all your social time like, is it's impossible. So to have to go and let go of like your whole family in one fell swoop is you know horrific as well and really that's the stuff that makes you feel sick for you know weeks to come is how did you deal with that um i so to be honest the practical side was and this is where i guess the only thing i haven't mentioned that i do is is the founders community so i started that community and the one thing i can tell you as an entrepreneur is and this is great for any any um you know uh, people who are employed listen up because this is the thing i wish i knew when i was an employee like you are 10 times more valuable than you think you are so Every entrepreneur is like desperate, like desperate for a good employee, like and like one, let alone five or 10 or 20. Like that is the dream. Um, a founder giving a recommendation of an ex-colleague is worth the entire uh, interview process. I mean, I know how founders interview, by the way, in, in small companies and big companies. And the reason why recommendations work so much better is because of you can judge the values of the person by the person recommending. So if you if people trust me, then they know that I am only going to recommend them great people. So that's a long winded way of me actually explaining that I promised to every single person that I wouldn't that Joel and I literally isn't just me at all. Joel and I said, um, we will not start our new project until every single one of you has found the job you wanted. That is like our guarantee. So until then, until we feel like you've got the jobs you want, we won't start. And we explain we've got three months and everything else. And we're like, look, please don't take longer than the first month because it's super stressful. But that'll be our focus. And so we committed. And then because I've got the founder community, I was able to uh, literally send an email. Here's 20 people that are all unbelievable, that have all been made redundant, effective immediately. We're paying their three month um, like you know, redundancy period anyway. Um, but they're all looking for jobs and you can call me for any one of their references, etc. 25 people at the time, uh, 15 of them went to companies that were in that community. That was the best thing for my mental health yeah. because um, as a founder, knowing 
knowing that your um, employees rely on you as much as you're relying on your investors, you're relying on each other. Like, but ultimately, the reason you don't choose to be an entrepreneur is so you have security. Yeah. Really. And so this is the problem with that logic is that security can be taken away by an outside force as well. So knowing that the safety net we could offer them was so meaningful, that was incredible and helped us sleep at night. Yeah, of course. And we're still such good friends with all of them. Just thinking about you being the founder of Founders. Yes, it's meta. Being surrounded by some incredibly successful founders. Mm. Can we just explore a bit more that sense of what it felt like to be an in inverted commas failure yeah. amongst your peers? Yeah, actually, unbelievable. So I emailed, um, there's two emails I sent to the community. And by the way, uh, so lots of founders fail. Um, the community is unbelievable in those moments like you would imagine but so i wouldn't our, imagine that well so our key value is be vulnerable right so we and this is the only reason this is why you can't um this is literally the reason why the community is free you can't pay your way in so like there's loads of business communities out there it's like pay us two grand a year whatever and then as soon as you do that you've paid your way in the only way in so funny enough me and uh Rob, who's my co-founder of Founders, we're the only ones who don't have any invites. So we're purposely removed from the process. So the only way you, you can guarantee not getting in is by emailing us or asking us for an invite. So we're like, we don't have any power there. Damn. There's a process. And you can only come in by being recommended by an existing member. And the existing members are all told like the, the rules. And you see it anyway. So you have to be in the community for three months before you can even recommend anyone. And the everyone is vulnerable. Everyone is, basically we say like this is not your PR exercise. You don't come to a founders event and talk about how great it is. You talk about how hard it is. I um, get that. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah. I get that. But I'm also like, it's very easy to say all those things. Yes. Um, and I'm just even talking from a personal perspective. It's really hard to live that. It, it, it is. But that's actually why I think there's only 350. You mentioned how many entrepreneurs there are in, in Britain. Yeah, and, you know, we're not a growth organisation. The reason it's free is like it's absolutely about the quality of the people. And, you know, there's that sort of is very famous. Um, I think it's Gandhi statement of, uh, you know, what you say, what you think and what you do being exactly in alignment. You know, that's like mm. how to have the, the greatest impact and purpose. So, you know, the people within Founders are people who, especially when you fail, I mean, the thing that makes us a completely different business uh, community to anything is that if and when you fail, you're still in. Right. That's and cool. actually, like most, all communities are like, yeah, sorry, now you failed, you're out because you're not doing X, Y, Z. There's a bunch of people in Founders who are currently employees at companies. Why? They failed. And when you fail, you fail really fucking hard. Like you lose all your money. Many of us have put our houses on mortgage, sold everything we've got. Like you do crazy things to keep your business going. And when you hit financial ruin from being a founder, it isn't like I lost my job. It is like legit. You had a whole bunch of assets tied up to your legal agreements and you're super screwed. At that point, it is so important that you've got community around you because your sense of self-worth, like your identity is so wrapped up in that, that, that thing. And so even to the point where every single event we've got, we've got bursaries. So you can come to an event, you know, we've got this one fun conference, you mentioned it, you know, it's um, three nights in the countryside, it's £500 for a ticket, um, which is half sponsored by sponsors. Um, but you can come for free. If your business has failed, you need community. You need people. And so it isn't about like, can we sell tickets? It's like, who are the people that need to be there around that person at that time to lift them up? Because actually, if you look throughout history, the entrepreneurs that really make it, never first time founders. That's literally only Mark Zuckerberg. Like, <laughs> generally speaking, these are guys who've gone four, five, six, seven times. Then they have their overnight success. Well, how do you think they got to that point? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of self-confidence. Like you have to pick yourself up. But the people around you, believing in you and making sure that you don't feel like you're worthless at the moment where you're most likely to is the greatest indicator for whether you're going to do it again. Um, there is actually, um, you know, a counterintuitive thought with, and certainly I've had investors say this to me, that, you know, the fact that I failed before makes me twice as investable because yeah. they assume everyone's going to fail. So if you assume everyone's going to fail as a common principle then it really is healthy for an investor to know it's not on their dime. During this journey of failure, um, how did it then lead you to your next venture? Okay, so the the fact is, during this process, I got insomnia. And 
I actually thought that my insomnia was related to my mental health, um, as you would. It is a mental health problem. It is a, literally a diagnosable mental health issue. I've had horrifically bad anxiety as well. That is, by the way, and this is extremely flippant of me, and I always get in trouble for being so cavalier about it, but you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you've got anxiety, you don't really have a mental health disease. You have a career choice. Yes. It's your problem. Um, uh, mine was like literally like verging on crippling, which is, surprises people because I'm confident, but um, you, the two things can definitely coexist, right? Uh, so these were, that was kind of my, my baseline, which I'm like, well, fair enough. That's, I could choose to do something less anxiety driven. Again, definition wise, you know, if you are depressed, you're so speaking of from a mental health point of view, if you're depressed, you're generally ruminating over sadness of your past. And if you've got anxiety, it's because you're projecting the future. So those are literally the two mental states that are happening related to depression and anxiety. So if you're an entrepreneur, your whole entire job is about predicting the future. Yeah. So, you know, go figure. Um, the, the reality for me was when I got insomnia, it was um, completely crippling, absolutely baffling to me about why it happened. And, uh, you know, my personal life was in a really good place. So I was getting married in the summer. My mum had just recovered from cancer. Um, you know, things were actually going well at the time. You know, I know I've, I've mentioned a lot of different things in my life so far, but that was a period when things were going up and to the right. So it was very, very, very confusing to me why this happened. And so I did the normal things you would do as a common sense person. I learned how to meditate. I uh, stopped drinking coffee. I, I, you know, I did all of these things. I went to a sleep therapist. I went to a normal therapist. Um, I basically do group therapy anyway. So I'm like, you know, very open mm. about my feelings. I want to make sure that I'm uh, not headed for a crash out of nowhere. But that's basically what happened with the insomnia. Mm. So I was like, Jesus Christ, I could do all these things. Like, I don't it? understand. Um, so I was really trying to cure it. And the... Uh, reality is five months in, a friend of mine bought me a book called Optimum Nutrition for the Mind, which is a brilliant insight is your brain is the same kind of organ as everything else in your body. And it's not really groundbreaking, but it's really fascinating to me. As soon as I'd read it, I'd realized I'd never really had this consideration of my brain being anything more than my mind. Mm -hmm. And so it's like your brain is like a physical organ. It has physiological requirements. You know, this is not... Uh, an author's opinion this is pure science and so your brain is made of essentially 60 percent fat right and 90 percent of that fat is a compound called dha so when you break that down mathematically that means 25 percent of your whole entire brain is dha and dha is uh one of the omega-3 so dha omega-3 and that is like the key building block. Your brain is more made of DHA than anything else in the whole composition. And it needs B vitamins and energy, uh, sorry, B vitamins as the energy source that it mostly relies on. And, you know, it mentioned things like blueberries and antioxidants, which, you know, clean out your glymphatic system when you're sleeping. And I was like, this is all very sensible. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, expecting to be really put off by everything, but actually it sort of explain, you know, if you've got a list of, if you've got a mental health disease and then listed a bunch, it's very possible you have a nutritional imbalance. And um, you might well have tried everything but that. And I was like, I have tried everything yeah. but that, you know, when you read like a self-improvement book, and you're like, <laughs> that's me he's talking yeah. about. So um, this, this book was really instrumental to me for just waking me up to this concept of, uh, of brain nutrition. And so immediately, uh, I took the supplements that were recommended in the book, which were DHA, omega-3, B vitamin complex and blueberry extract. I'd had insomnia for five months. So to give you symptom wise, I was going to sleep at midnight and then waking up at 2 a.m. Mm. Every single night. Not falling back to sleep. <clears throat> no, not at all. I'm completely wide awake. And so uh, after five months, it's really debilitating, right? So... And and also, most importantly, it becomes your new reality. Yeah. So, uh, you know, three months in, you're like, you still think you can solve it. Five months in, you're like, this is actually who I am now. I'm the guy that doesn't sleep more than two hours a night. Um, and for the first three three months, you're like, I'll be productive with my extra time, miracle morning and all that stuff. And actually, you know, after a while, you're like, no, I'm just, I'm just tired. <laughs> and was this so. while you were doing the tech? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Um, so I was extremely 
uh, impressed, to say the least, that within two weeks, I was sleeping till 5am. And then within four weeks, I was sleeping till 7am. And ultimately, you know, I've had pretty much a good night's sleep, you know, I wear a, a sleep tracker as a ring. And you know, I'm really into tracking, you know, I, I know a lot about insomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, I host panels on sleep and you know, all this stuff, because uh, I'm not an expert. But I've lived the experience. Yeah. And the interesting thing about most experts is they've never lived the experience. And I think that's why a very fascinating thing. You know, when I host these panels and the scientists on there, they all know the science, but they've never had the human experience of the problem. Um, actually, I can say as someone who suffered massively from anxiety and insomnia, I cured both of those things with my nutrition. Um, that's coming from a place of uh, literally not being the type of person who would believe that. So I am the type of person who traditionally would say, um, you know, the greatest predictor of my success is my mindset, and therefore my mind and my mind is what's in control. And therefore, my mind is probably the reason why I'm in I've got insomnia, I just haven't determined the root cause yet. And I'm on a constant journey to discovering it. And when I discover it, that thing will turn. And actually, if I reframe the whole conversation, it's far more logical to say that the choices I was making about what I was putting into my body or not, um, were creating this problem. Um, what I literally not in the slightest bit even considered was a year before that I'd gone completely plant-based. Um, the typical experience as any <clears throat> vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, etc. would actually explain to you, there's really there's three three ways people make that choice. One is animal cruelty, two is nutrition, and three is environment. Now, if you were to say go vegan because of animal cruelty, um, then you won't necessarily know about your nutrition. If you are to go vegan because of the environment, which was my reason, I'd watch one too many documentaries, uh, then again, you don't really learn about it from the nutrition point of view. I knew about supplementing B12 because people tell you that if you're vegan all the time, but I did not know about all the other bits and pieces as well. For example, it should be common knowledge and it should be well-respected information given to people properly that DHA omega-3 is such an important building block. And the reason why is because DHA is found in three places, really. Marine life, algae, and, um, and and basically flaxseed. You need like a kilo of flaxseed. I don't know many people that go around eating a ton of algae every day. And so the reason most normal people eating normal general diets don't have DHA deficiencies or problems is they eat fish in their diet like a couple of times a week, whatever. Now, the reality, as I learned, is when you're not getting those things, your brain is not getting the nutrients it needs. And it's it's very common that it will turn a switch basically, and something will suffer. That's what happened in my case. None of these experts were actually able to diagnose me. Um, One of the reasons is because I never even crossed my mind to go to a nutritionist or a dietitian until someone told me to, Mm. right? It just doesn't factor. And so just going back to your broken rule of don't talk about failure. Yes. um, This was during your three months, right? So when did the personal and the professional collide, which then led you on to heights? So this was actually just just before them, um, like solving it. And so, um, you know, the journey into heights actually comes from this. Uh, like, once you've had something like this and you've cured it yourself, you know, I became so passionate about this idea that I was like, right, I'm going to just learn and read loads of brain science, right? Because I was fascinated about this idea that your brain's an organ. Again, really obvious. But like, well, what else? What is like? What what does brain health really mean, right? Because again. I just try to cure myself by thinking about mental health. Mm. And the way that I think about mental health and the way we all talk about mental health, in my opinion, is we'll have mental health, right? Like we all have physical health, but mental health, when you say it out loud, sounds like you've got a problem. So mental health comes with a stigma of actually people actually mean mental health problems. That's really what the sentence means. Um, I'd gone through the same experience. I'd had a mental health problem. I'd look for a solution. And I was like... You know, nowhere in my consciousness, as someone who goes to the gym regularly and meditates and all this kind of stuff, nowhere in this consciousness really um, had I thought about what good brain health looks like. Um, you know, when I ask people, what's the last time, when's the last time you did something good for your brain? Mm. People, or for your brain's health, people do always, you know, say if they do, they're like, I meditated. I'm like, but that's your mind. Like, when's the last time you did something for your brain, the organ? And actually, there's really only two answers to that properly. Um, well, I mean, there are a few more to be fair, but there's, there's, there's hydrating. So there's drinking water regularly. 
There's nutrition, so that is either having a really conscious, sensible diet. The way that we all think about our diets at the moment is aesthetically, generally speaking, right? As in, I want to lose weight, I want to put on weight, I want to look a certain way, or I want to just be normal. So my diet dictates those logic, like that that simple set of rules that we create for ourselves are how people think about nutrition. And what I think about those rules is actually they're completely backwards. Because if we looked at the common rule, or actually, you know, this is a really hard one to um, disagree with, but a fundamental belief I have, which is that a healthier brain is the greatest predictor of a happier life. So if you were to reframe all of your decisions and put your brain first, so in all of the meals you ate, the time you spent, the, the company you kept, and you actually thought about like, how is this impacting my brain? What would cascade from that point is you would have a healthier body, you would have a better schedule that made more space for yourself, you would sleep better, like all of these things would happen. And same thing around the nutrition. If you, I mean, I cannot understate um, the difference. And this isn't about um, people taking heights. This is literally what's in heights is in, you know, other products too. So you can choose to take them elsewhere and you can also choose to have a better diet. Like this is not, I'm not selling a miracle cure by any means. I'm selling convenience. We put them together in quality form in one product. That's the sell. However, I cannot undersell the impact of actually prioritizing your brain's health from a nutrition and hydration point of view. Suddenly you realize you don't need five coffees to be awake every single day. You realize you can go to sleep. You realize you generally just got a much higher baseline of sustained energy. And all of that is really well documented throughout science. And that's what's so interesting. This is not new to science at all. It just doesn't see the light of day. The same thing comes back to rule number one, which is we're not experts in the field, but we'd literally, I'd suffered from a personal experience I could understand, very curable. And not only that, but like very scientifically proven to be curable. And then when it comes to building a product in this space, the thing that I personally really like about my product is um, is literally telling people that they don't have to buy heights. As in, the best thing about what um, our product is, which is a smart supplement designed for your brain's health, the best thing about it is you could buy all of those ingredients from other companies. You can, like I say, you can go onto our website and we've got recipes, we've got a newsletter, we do recipes every single week, you can cook it yourself. There is no such thing as a miracle cure pill. It is just convenience. And the preference for everyone is that you would choose to live a brain first life by putting your brain first and having a nutritional and hydrational relationship where you actually consciously think about your brain. It's a bit meta, um, but it is so much more meaningful than just thinking about your mental health. Can we go into the final rule? Because uh, yes, you're going to run out of time. This is, the, this, is, this is the offensive one that you're going to get all the tweets about. But uh, the, the rule is go to the doctor. And I don't think that that is actually... Uh, two things. I don't think that's proven to be uh, as necessary today. And I also like categorically think that the only thing better than curing a problem is preventing one at all. And so if you prevent an illness, like what doctor do you need to go and see? So... I think the really amazing thing that's happened in the last 10 years is finally people have said, I don't actually believe that doctors are necessarily uh, the experts on everything. And the reason that that conversation has actually happened is around nutrition. So we have finally accepted in society that the greatest predictor for my health span and lifespan are the lifestyle and nutritional choices I'll make today. They are the greatest, most likely predictors of who I will be and how I will be in 10 years. Now, 20 years ago, if you said that around any of your mates, let alone doctors, they think you were mad because your genes define you. That was prevailing science. And even to this day in the NHS, you go through seven years of, uh, of training and you get about 13 hours of nutritional training, full stop. And I think that that is absolutely not doctor's um, fault. That's the system. However, we live in a world where most of the money, and it's much worse in America, as you know, but most of the money spent in doctors' clinics come from self-inflicting choices. And ultimately, the 
lack of personal responsibility any of us are actually willing to take for our own health. So yes, there's a whole bunch of that that is obviously fed by, you know, extra calories everywhere and pollution and all the other bits and pieces, like I totally accept that. However, it is completely possible to keep yourself out of a doctor's surgery and not go to a doctor and create the best conditions for your physical and mental wellness by reading and by understanding how your body works on a simple basis and and so I was just gonna say the last 10 years have actually taught us that to be true in wellness so you've got all these people with protein brands for example what that's done is tell people to go to the gym more people are interested in going to the gym going to classes doing yoga doing all these things because they understand that just taking some personal responsibility and looking after their body is going to make them feel better and keep them out of the doctor's office so how on earth could we possibly say the same isn't true about our brains and and mental health? We live in a mental health epidemic right now. So it's literally being classified by the World Health Organization as the epidemic of our times. And more and more people are committing suicide every single day. And the reality for all of those conditions are that we're not having a conversation yet about what wellness and prevention looks like around the brain. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I see it as exactly the same parallel as 10 years ago where we were with our physical bodies. Like now, generally speaking, people are so much healthier because they do things every day. As you talk. Yes. The way that you're talking about um, health slash illness slash well-being mm. also implies like a real sense of having control, um, which is fun, funnily enough, it's connected to anxiety, isn't it? Mm. Now. I guess I'm asking you, do you really believe that you can control your health? No, not in all cases, because it is scientific fact that we have genetic predispositions. Um, You know, I have genetic, I contain genetic predispositions from my parents, as do you. But I, you know, for example, um, you know, I've inherited certain uh, genetic issues that can only be mitigated but they can be mitigated and prevented in some of them um through looking after my health um you know when my dad was younger that knowledge wasn't around there are definitely some genetic diseases you can't avoid um and also there's randomness right like cancer obviously like we all know like you know i'm not i'm not suggesting there is a wellness cure yet to cancer but we might well discover that there is um, so no, I don't think for starters, there is no absolute in any of this stuff, right? There was also no absolute in science. It's a great question. But what I do think is that the prevailing common um, belief system was the other way around, was that 99% genes and 1% lifestyle and nutrition. And thank God, I believe that that's actually switched. And I think that most doctors know that that's switched, you know. And again, if you said lifestyle medicine 10 years ago, um, you would basically be considered as as good a witch as possible, right? It's just not appropriate language to use when you're using the medicine space. But there's so much stuff that we can actually take responsibility for. And, you know, mental health is not a, um, and this is, I guess, my, my overarching point. Mental health is not a single-sided argument. And where I actually sit on the debate is that if I walked into any room, full stop, I could say with 100% certainty that when I talked about mental health and other people talked to me about having mental health problems and I asked them what they think the things are that they can do to prevent it, I can say for sure that people would tell me therapy, antidepressants, um, social connection, um, you know, like all, all of the th- meditating. I, like these are all the words that people would use. I don't think anyone would use nutrition. And as not an expert, mm. um, you've done a really cool job of getting a load of people together who perhaps would be perceived as being experts. In yes, this they are. So the thing is, um, people want, and, just, and they should, people want comfort. Um, what, when I say comfort, people want to know, especially if they're putting something in their body, like our product is um, vegan, all natural, organic, the most bioavailable sources, all this stuff, right? But ultimately, like, who am I to tell you that? Like, I'm a biased founder. Like, they're going to go on a website and anyone with any degree of scepticism is going to go all right, nice looking site, nice looking product, good marketing copy, like still could be a charlatan for all I know. And good, like I'm really glad that consumers are actually sceptical enough. So my job is to take away the fear, the rational fear and scepticism that would come from anyone figuring this out. No, absolutely. I guess 
I don't blame people for being cynical. No, um, me it's in the newspaper every day. Well, I'm going to read cynical. you a bit of a, of a cynical... Well, this isn't even cynical. This is the Global Council on Brain Health. Yeah. They released a statement last year saying there is no convincing evidence to recommend dietary supplements for brain health and healthy older adults. Yeah. So, of course, I'm sure being the kind of business person that you are, you are well aware of these type of comments. Yes. What's your response to them? I think the more damaging one um, is, to be totally honest, there was an article in The Guardian, um, like, a year ago and I got sent it by all my friends right because you would and the 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 headline was save your money supplements don't work and then the reality is in the article itself it basically said most supplements don't work but it's all about bioavailability and form and so these are the ones that do right and so but no one read the article everyone just read the title so it's really like there's nothing in it um the thing with um scientifically proven if anyone can explain to me how you can scientifically prove prevention, that is the big... I mean, this is literally the biggest question in prevention. And this is why pharmaceutical companies don't go into it, right? There's there's literally... As someone who basically just recovered from, um, from the flu and a virus, like I was given a whole bunch of things, which, well, ironically, in my case, they didn't actually cure it. But usually you get a flu and someone gives you Nurofen or Lemsip or whatever, and you feel like, you know, you cure it and see so, like they work. But how can you prove that anything that you've done to prevent has worked? You never got the thing in yeah. the first place. It's, it's, it's an unbelievably complicated paradox. The best example I have to, um, to that is there's a scientific study set up by a guy called Professor David Smith. So he is the um, head of pharmacology at Oxford University. And Oxford University is one of the top five universities in the world for brain prevention diseases. Um, so I'm not obviously just saying that Oxford's a good uni, but for that specific thing. And so as a head of pharmacology, which is the department that studies it, it is fair to say he's one of the world's experts in this area. And he did a uh, like a 20-year double-blind control placebo um, test with using B vitamins. So just B vitamins in thousands of patients. Uh, not much improvement in their brain scans. Uh, sorry, this is patients that were showing early signs of dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, just DHA omega 3s, tiny, tiny, tiny bit of improvement, not much. The two together created, and this is what's so unbelievably like mind-blowing, not only reversing the, um, the, the, basically this is all done with brain scans, so you can see in the canopy area, like the, the outside of the brain, essentially like a shadow uh, approaching it, right? So this was um, not, so when you had DHA omega 3 and B vitamins together, it was not only um, stopping it from developing but starting to prevent it and shrinking the damage that was actually done wow. now his theory for why that happens is because from the age of 25 uh, plus we all start having this the most neurons we'll ever have in our brain start shrinking but don't panic because it really doesn't start happening quickly until like you're plus 70 although it's worth saying the earliest case of dementia actually was uh someone in their early 30s but anyway um, what actually happens during dementia and Alzheimer's is your brain um, functions stop going slowly. And the way that you actually die from dementia and Alzheimer's is you forget how to breathe. That is actually what the terminal cause is. So it's actually uh, very, very slow. It happens very slowly. My grandma had it. I've, I've lived with it in my family, like, you know, for years. And actually what he proved is that something that comes from nature, which is omega-3s and B vitamins, um, not only stop uh, so pre yeah stop it from growing but prevent it and his again his theory was that they are the building blocks of the brain mm. so if you think about actually what's happening really high level you don't need to be a scientist to understand that if you're forgetting how things work where they are where you are who you are etc your brain is shrinking and losing bits of it and um, if b vitamins and omega-3s are the building blocks of your brain it's very fair to say that the concept of preventing the shrinkage is just as good a concept as anything to say that if it's not shrinking, then you're not losing those areas. And that is the crux of his argument. And just to tell you, he is unable to get funding for this. And the reason, so we've spent so far $200 billion um, in the pharmaceutical industry for Alzheimer's and dementia drugs, which, by the way, are the types of things, sadly, that do get talked about in scientific research. And so far, there are zero cases of success globally in the whole entire world. B vitamins and, D and D well, in this case, it was DHA predominantly, but omega-3s, let's say, um, they come from nature. So the problem Unpatent with that, it. you cannot patent it. Yeah. So you cannot make money from it. 
So you cannot be a pharmaceutical company and make any money from that information coming out, which means as a university, you can't get funding yeah. for it because who's going to fund it? Mother Nature? <laughs> so this is crazy, but this is true. Yeah. And that is science. And that is the kind of stuff that sadly doesn't get written about in scientific papers because what are you really going to write about? Dan, I'm really pleased that you were able to answer that because I was scared to read you that quote. But of course, no, you've done your research. Yeah, um, and I think, Dan, I, think, I think it's really important to challenge people as well. Like, so do you don't I. want someone coming in and just telling a PR version of a story <laughs> and, you know, each their own. Yeah, absolutely. As well. Um, Dan, I could talk to you for hours uh, about everything really, but also particularly heights. However, we will be chucked out of here soon. So can you please tell me the one rule that you will never break? Have pets. So I think it's I think it's just incredibly important. It doesn't matter how big or small your pet is. And obviously, if you have a full time job, having a dog is not a very responsible pet. But, you know, having some kind of pet or animal presence in the house one way or another is just unbelievable for your mental health. You know, I really wouldn't be surprised if a year in a year's time we meet and you set up a new startup in like delivery, petdelivery.com. For their brains. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get smart pets. Um, thank you so much. You are such a library of knowledge uh, and so incredibly honest about your journey so far. So please keep creating and improving our health. Thank you very much thank for having you. me. 